Hello and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from Stevenson Harwood's international employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Adam Cook and I'm an associate having recently joined the team. I have with me Kate Brearley, an employment partner in our international employment team. Today we will be discussing a number of topics arising from recent cases and providing some key takeaway points. This podcast will have a particular focus on the wording of employment contracts and policies when considering benefit schemes and investigation, disciplinary action or potential dismissal of an employee. Kate, let's start with the news of the Supreme Court giving Morrison's permission to appeal the data breach class action brought against them. Thanks Adam and welcome to the team. As a quick reminder, in 2014, Morrison's found itself the victim of a data breach carried out by a rogue employee who deliberately leaked the personal information of 100,000 staff members. The leaked details included staff salaries, bank account information and national insurance numbers, all leaked to several newspapers and the employee also posted the information on various data sharing websites. As a result, in July 2014, the now unsurprisingly ex-employee was sentenced to eight years' imprisonment and the employees affected brought a claim for damages against Morrison's. By October 2018, the case had reached the Court of Appeal, who upheld a finding that Morrison's was vicariously liable for this data breach, despite Morrison's itself being absolved from all wrongdoing. The issues the Supreme Court will consider are firstly whether vicarious liability is available at all in the context of a breach under the Data Protection Act in circumstances where the Act itself prescribes the consequences of breach. Secondly, whether the Court of Appeal's conclusion that the employee was acting in the course of his employment when he leaked the data was correct. Unsurprisingly, the case is being watched closely by both employers and lawyers, and we'll be reporting on the progress of the appeal. But in the meantime, the best advice for the employer is to follow the Court of Appeal's suggestion to ensure against the risk of this sort of rogue action. Thanks, Kate. We will now turn our attention to two cases in the Employment Appeal Tribunal that revolved around rights conferred on an employee under a long-term disability scheme. Both cases involved the same employer, ICTS. In the first decision, the claimant, Mr Arwan, brought a claim arguing that it was unfair and discriminatory to dismiss him whilst he was entitled to long-term disability benefit payments. The Employment Appeal Tribunal ruled that the dismissal was unfair. Kate, on what basis did the Employment Appeal Tribunal reach their decision? The short answer is that the Employment Appeal Tribunal implied a term restricting the right of ICS to give notice under the contract, whilst Mr Awan was entitled to long-term disability benefits. The Tribunal analysed the situation on the basis that the purpose of the long-term disability benefit scheme would be defeated if ICTS could end entitlement under the scheme by dismissing Mr Awan when he was receiving benefits. It followed that a term could be implied into his contract, restricting the employer's right to give notice to dismiss. Such an implied term would merely limit, rather than contradict, the express contractual power to terminate on notice. This last point is particularly important to note because of the cardinal rule that a tribunal or court cannot imply a term into a contract where that term would contradict an express term. 
Or put another way, express terms always trump any potential implied term. Thanks, Kate. The second case involving ICTS centred on the assessment of compensation due to another employee receiving long-term disability benefit, whom ICTS had dismissed. How did ICTS fare in that case? Again, another costly outcome for ICTS, Adam. In the case of Visrum, the Employment Appeal Tribunal held that on the wording of the contract, Mr Visrum was entitled to compensation for loss of entitlement to benefits under a long-term disability policy. The phrase return to work in Mr Visrum's contract, properly interpreted, was a return to the work he had been doing when he went off sick, not a return to any work. Since here there was no prospect that Mr Visrum would ever be able to do the work he was doing when he became ill, he was entitled to be compensated for loss of benefits until death or retirement. This was a costly lesson for the employer and is another example of where the courts have found in an employee's favour when determining entitlement to contractual benefits. In this circumstance, the policy document covering the entitlement was ambiguously drafted. The key takeaway learnt at not inconsiderable cost by ICTS is that the employers must take great care in drafting their policies providing long-term disability benefits, including any insurance policies incorporated into contracts of employment. Ambiguous drafting should be avoided at all costs, a lesson that of course applies to all contract drafting. This is also a reminder to employers that compensation for a disability discrimination claim is uncapped, so extra caution should always be taken in these circumstances. We will now turn our attention to considering the wording of an employment contract where an employee is a subject of a criminal or regulatory investigation. Kate, can an employer pursue its own disciplinary process while these types of investigations are ongoing, and can pay be discontinued whilst the employee is suspended? These were questions looked at by the Court of Appeal in the case of Dr Gregg, a consultant in anaesthetics with North West Anglia NHS Foundation Trust, a case which is both of general significance, but particularly for any employers operating in a regulated sector. By way of background, the facts were these. The Trust became concerned following the deaths of two patients under Dr Gregg's care. Having conducted its own investigation, the Trust suspended Dr Gregg on full pay and notified both the police and the General Medical Council. The police commenced their own investigation and separately informed the General Medical Council. Subsequently, Dr Gregg's registration to practice was suspended by a division of the General Medical Council. The Trust then lifted its separate suspension, believing it to be unnecessary, but stopped Dr Gregg's salary. Dr Gregg challenged the decision to stop pay as a breach of contract and also objected to participating in the trust disciplinary process while he was subject to potential criminal proceedings. Initially, the High Court granted an injunction preventing the trust from continuing its disciplinary process until after the police had completed their investigation. High Court also ruled the trust was in breach of contract in stopping Dr Gregg's pay. The trust appealed. So in colloquial terms, one all in the High Court. What did the Court of Appeal decide, Kate, and what are the consequences of these decisions for employers? So on the first issue of the relationship between disciplinary proceedings and the potential criminal proceedings, the Court of Appeal found as follows. Firstly, an employer does not usually need to wait for the conclusion of any criminal proceedings before commencing or continuing internal disciplinary proceedings or if they are considering dismissing an employee doing so. 
Secondly, the court will usually only intervene if the employee can show that the continuation of the domestic or the employer's disciplinary proceedings give rise to a real danger of a miscarriage of justice in the criminal proceedings. The police will often have no objection to the employer continuing disciplinary proceedings. In rare cases, the police may ask the employer to defer its process. What should an employer do in this circumstance? In those cases, Adam, careful consideration should be given to the request from the police and the reasons for it, and advice should always be taken before a decision is reached by the employer. The same principles will generally also apply where the employee is subject to a regulatory investigation. Thanks, Kate. Turning now to the second issue of the trust stopping Dr Gregg's pay, what did the Court of Appeal decide? The Court of Appeal decided that the trust should not have stopped Dr Gregg's pay. The correct approach, said the Court of Appeal, is firstly to look at the contract of employment. If that does not permit pay being stopped, as contracts usually won't, the second question is whether stopping pay could be permitted by custom and practice. Again, very unlikely. If the answer to that too is negative, then the common law principle that to be entitled to pay, the employee must be ready, willing and able to work had to be considered. The suspension of Dr Gregg's registration, referred to as an interim non-terminatory suspension, did not justify his pay being stopped. On the facts, Dr Gregg's contract did not permit withholding salary during his suspension. Indeed, it expressly prohibited deductions And indeed, the trust disciplinary policy stated that suspension would usually be on full pay. What should employers take away from the Court of Appeals' decision on this issue? Stopping the pay of an employee who has been suspended is a risky strategy and will only be a safe option in very few cases and after advice has been taken. Unless there is a clear contractual right, it is only in exceptional cases that an employer will be justified in stopping an employee's pay during a period of suspension. The employer should instead focus on completing the investigation and, where relevant, its disciplinary proceedings as quickly as possible and, absent exceptional circumstances, always within the timescales provided for in the contract. Our last case also concerns suspension. When an employer is considering suspending an employee, what criteria must the employer satisfy? As the Court of Appeal confirmed in the case of the Mayor and Burgesses of the London Borough of Lambeth versus Agareo, the employer must have a reasonable and proper cause to suspend. An employer does not need to demonstrate that the suspension was necessary. These are entirely separate tests and the Court of Appeal has clarified that there is actually no test of necessity. Adam, I think a brief overview of the facts of the Agareo case would be helpful. Certainly. Miss Agoreo, a primary school teacher, was alleged to have used unreasonable force towards two children, aged five and six, in her class on three occasions. Two of the incidents were investigated and it was found that only reasonable force had been used. However, following the third incident, Miss Agoreo was suspended on full pay pending an investigation being conducted. Miss Agoreo immediately resigned and brought a breach of contract claim, arguing that her suspension was a repudiatory breach of the implied duty of trust and confidence. She accepted that the allegations should be investigated, but claimed that suspension was not reasonable or necessary for the investigation to take place. Kate, what can employers take away from this case when considering suspending an employee? In the case of Miss Agoreo, the employer had an obligation to safeguard the children and the allegations were serious, 
So that justified the employer having a reasonable and proper cause to suspend Miss Agareo pending a full investigation. The suspension, therefore, did not amount to a breach of the implied term of trust and confidence. It's also useful to note from this case that considering whether a suspension is a neutral act preserving the employment relationship was deemed by the Court of Appeal to be neither a relevant question nor a particularly helpful one. The Court acknowledged that while suspension can be disruptive, the only question for employers is whether there is reasonable and proper cause for suspending the employee, a question which the Court also acknowledged is highly fact-sensitive. Thanks, Kate. And to finish... What should employers be considering if they are in the situation where they're having to consider suspending an employee? In the first instance, employers should always check the employment contract for an express contractual right to suspend and any limitations on that right. Also, who has the authority to make any decision to suspend? Any contractual provisions regarding suspension should be strictly adhered to. The courts have also been very clear that suspension must never be a knee-jerk reaction and it is all about the employer having a reasonable and proper cause to suspend. However, practical issues do arise, such as how to explain the employee's absence to colleagues and clients, the appropriate length of suspension and whether there is an alternative suspension and those issues should all be seriously considered. Finally, suspension should always be kept under review and the suspended employee updated on the progress of the investigation and, where relevant, any disciplinary proceedings. Where there is any significant delay or where it is anticipated an investigation will take longer than any period prescribed by the disciplinary procedure, the suspended employee should be informed and an explanation given. Of course, if the justification for the suspension falls away, the suspension must be lifted immediately. Thanks, Kate. And thanks for listening. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. (laughs) 